Peter Weller is a renowned theater and Hollywood actor. His performances in films such as Robocop and The Naked Lunch garnering him much critical and commercial success over the years. Though unbeknownst to most, Weller has spent much of his time over the decades honing his appreciation for the visual and musical arts through the study of the Renaissance era. Earning a master's in Roman architecture from Syracuse University before moving on to a PhD in Renaissance art from UCLA, Weller has even penned numerous academic papers covering the era's influence on modern art. Recently, Weller has even returned to the setting of Robocop in Detroit, Michigan to deliver a lecture on the crisis of beauty. Peter has also contributed an essay to our art anthology on music, which details his memories of the late Miles Davis, who is both a friend and an inspiration to Mr. Weller. This interview was conducted remotely by Mia Funk during the global pandemic. and joys which you cannot see because it's all backlit uh-huh. is right up here is a, is a Larry Rivers oh a Larry Rivers wow you got quite a collection yeah gouache this is a, this is Charlie Parker's it's called Icon Hands but uh-huh. it's, it's so it's so beautiful I can move this thing around some more wow it, it's I Charlie get... Parker's saxophone wow it's, it's gouache acrylic relief I see it's it now amazing thing yeah. yeah, it's from uh, 1982. Uh, that's a, that's and, uh, very powerful. It, well, the thing is, Larry Rivers is a jazz guy like me, uh-huh. and I chased that I chased that painting. I couldn't afford it. I couldn't afford it. Uh-huh. And he was a fan of Naked Lunch. Oh right. He was okay. a friend of yeah. He was a friend of Burroughs. Uh huh. So he he was, became a fan of mine. Uh huh. And an interim Earl McGrath I said well you know I've been chasing a painting of his at the Marlboro Gallery I can't afford yeah. and he worked it out that he got it back from the Marlboro Gallery and sold it to me for a song a wow. song but, uh, but these are like my although my deal is mm-hmm. and there's a lot more art in here uh you could go chapter eleven and dead broke fine art. Yeah. And even though even though my thing is the Renaissance and that's what I teach and lecture in, mm-hmm. um, my obsession though is more contemporary as you can see. Yeah. I still I still don't know where to hang that rock though, so Ah, uh, no, I mean it's it's very inspiring and it's great that you have these I mean, they're not just Objects, right? They're they're pieces of your life. They have you of marked time, and um, so, yeah. So that's that's lovely to be surrounded by that. Um, yeah, it's strange. So you're f- full of surprises because I'd heard about. I didn't know about your contemporary or modern collection, um, but I'd heard about the Miles Davis. So um, and it's great that you you cross all genres and all mediums. So that's um, I think it's important. It's very Renaissance, in fact. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, and, and Roscoe, I just gave a paper to the 16th Century Society about the influence of Renaissance art on film. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, I connected to, you know, Roscoe was hugely influenced by the Renaissance. I mean, yeah. he was, you know, hugely influenced by Joel Toller and some other people. And how can you, nowadays, uh, Mia, I, I, this is just, I'm vamping on this interview. So. No, it's great. I like vamping. Uh, uh, now, nowadays, the sad thing to me is that in academia, you can jump into studying mm-hmm. 
contemporary, modern contemporary art without studying the Renaissance. You could, mm-hmm. you could jump into abstract postmodern film mm-hmm. without studying the, uh, uh, looking at the guys who began it. Mm-hmm. And that's sort of uh, lacking because if you don't know the connective tissue to contemporary modern art, then really, what are you looking at? I mean, yeah, I mean, you know, yeah, I mean, it's. A- Go ahead, go ahead. No, no, I mean, I can't agree. It's not, it's not for me to tell you, but yeah, it's you, it's important to have that. Ex- how will you know what they're in dialogue with, you know? Exactly right. Yeah. And how do you know what to get It's all one connective game. Anyway, yeah. there's nobody that, there's nobody who's not taking anything. I mean, even Suzanne, mm-hmm. with his edging, you know, yeah. I did not know this until I took a, a, a little short seminar with Mary and Kalo at Colgate that, you know, Suzanne's idea of taking images, and yeah, he's an impressionist, but so forth, and yeah, he can use 50 shades of green in one forest, but then he starts to edge the shapes. Why? Because he's looking at Piero del Francesca, yeah. edging mathematical, ma- I mean, Piero, del, Piero called Nate, uh, you know, essentially mathematics God, because yeah. mathematics geometry starts in nature. I mean, the perfection of a leaf, the perfection of a pear, the perfection of a, you know, of a shape of nature. So subsequently, he started to do everything in pastel and edge the shape of it so that you could see the mathematics in it. And then you jump to Suzanne. Suzanne falls in love with that thing, Papiero. Mm-hmm. And he gets to Papiero. He says, I want to edge this geometry so you see the apple and the pear jump out at you. Mm-hmm. Out of that, what do you get? You get futurism, precisionism, cubism. Then you get abstract impressionism, you go right into Mondrian and whatever. So mm-hmm. studying Rothko, who already knows this stuff, mm-hmm. how are you going to know Rothko if you don't know Piero? I mean, yeah. I, you, know, you know what I'm saying? So. You can't really appreciate it. What is it? You're looking at something flat when you actually could be like going into history, going through time yes. and voices. Yeah. Yes. I mean, Mia, I was sitting with three bankers in my cigar club in the room, and they were looking at that, uh, uh, a Mondrian. Uh, and they said, what? And one of them, Davey, said, yeah, okay, I, I like the colors in this, but what does this come from? Mm-hmm. And in, in five minutes, I could say, look, Mondrian is giving you shape. He's giving you geometry. He's abstracting geometry. You can go back to Mondrian and you can see that he did, he did cubism, he did figurative realism, he did it all. Yeah. But if you go back and look at what this comes from, and I, I, you know, I showed him a Wong Gris, I showed him a, a, a Brock, and I said, yeah, 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 we did that. I said, well, you see this guitar here, this wheel, and this, yeah, okay, well, that's coming out of, essentially, I take him to Cezanne, and I take him back to uh, um, the Impressionists, and, and, you know, and, and, and in five minutes, they, wow, they're looking at Mondrian, like, as an evolution of shape, rather mm-hmm. than a bunch of squares. Yeah. That, it doesn't take a genius teacher to teach that, you know. It all is just like, like somebody to set up the art and show you how. But I, I, I can't imagine going to study UCLA, mm-hmm. the temporary art, without taking a class in the Renaissance. I can't. I, I don't understand it. I don't get it. Well, yeah, I think it's really essential to know why something is exciting. If people are breaking the rules, what are they breaking? If it's just like brand new, like a baby, then it, 
that you just don't appreciate it. And um, I can imagine that you would be an excellent teacher because beyond that, and I was thinking about the linkages, the connective tissue, I mean, particularly, I think, for the Renaissance, which is so much um, the human drama, which is so much the political, you know, the ideology and uh, the, you know, the poetry and all of these things going on. And then you can bring life into it as a, your experience as an actor and director that, that yes, that these are... Um, that's what's so I think essential about the Renaissance. It's not just a decorative. Yeah, that, 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 the Renaissance is the Renaissance is immense, though. Yeah. I'll show you something. There's a wonderful movie star. She retired in the '80s. She's so beautiful, mm-hmm. but she has a degree from Wellesley Design, and uh, we did a movie together. And her name is Ali McGraw. The great Ali McGraw. Yeah. The, the, the great Ally McGraw okay, so look at this the great Ally McGraw got me learning French and she took me to MoMA mm-hmm. well we were an item and we're still great friends and she's almost like the godmother to my kid and mm-hmm. uh, and my beautiful wife's gonna come in here in a minute but Ally um, when we were together we were dating 79 to 81 82 we then remained French forever mm-hmm. uh, MoMA was sending back the Guernica was sending the Guernica to, to Madrid to the Prado and the reason is because Picasso said if Spain ever has a social democracy this painting has to go to Spain so Franco died and then his, you know Juan Carlos set up the social democracy I'm telling you history you already know so the Prado uh, was getting ready to receive it but MoMA had the largest Picasso retro, uh, retrospective um, ever yeah. Five floors of Picasso. Five mm-hmm. floors of everything he did from when he was 12 all the way up to his, like, mm-hmm. uh, truly abstract impressionism. And uh, all around the Guernica. So mm-hmm. Allie had, because of, we, we think that she's a movie star, mm-hmm. but Allie um, was, uh, you know, studied at Wellesley, and she was picked by Diana Vreeland, who was the stylist, oh, the yeah. head of stylist folks. And Vreeland would pick some girl from an Ivy League university who was majoring in design, Sylvia Plath, the great poet, Tess was one of her girls, and she would groom this student to be a stylist with Vogue. And Allie was one of Diana Vreeland's picks. So Allie became the stylist for several photographers, mostly Skolsky, and uh, she traveled in the realm of the liberal arts and, mm-hmm. the, 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 and the figurative arts. So when I met her, I just knew her as a, as a movie star. Mm-hmm. But all of a sudden when we, we started dating after the film, I am now going to dinners with, uh, man, I mean, I'm sitting with all sorts of people. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm sitting with Rauschenberg and Warhol and Truman Capote and Halston and, and Gore Vidal and, mm-hmm. uh, and, and I go to the book openings, and I, you know, I meet Erica Shong and Betty Friedan, uh, you know, Steinem. Yeah. I was the caboose at the end of Allie's train. And Allie knew these people not as a movie star, some of them she did, but mostly as a stylist with Vogue and Diana Vreeland. We go to the Met Ball, introduce me to Vreeland, I sit next to Alvin Ailey, Martha Graham. I mean, the, 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 the immersion mm. into the New York art scene. And she got me learning French. I said, how do you learn French? She said, get a kid, come to your house. And then tu es Paris maintenant. Paris me manque beaucoup. 
Il faut que j'aille Paris, je perds ma tête. Parce que je dors Paris. Mais anyway, she got me. And then she sent me here. I said, look, where do I start? She says, okay, start with the impressionist. That's the easiest thing. Start with Monet and Monet. And you can get your head around that because you like movies and so forth. Okay, when you study Monet and Monet, it's, you go to the post-impressionist and you start reading about all these Renaissance guys, that even Picasso, uh, even Cara said, art without Giotto is not art. Everything goes back to Giotto, and as this guy said, I forget, I think it was for art and architecture, said that Giotto is the one seminal fulcrum on which all Western art is based, and it's a reputation that is irretrievable. Mm-hmm. There's not a painter on planet Earth will doubt or subliminalize Giotto as a cornerstone of Western art. Mm-hmm. Doesn't matter whether you're talking about color, space, time, dimension, perspective, whatever. Yeah. So I don't know who Giotto is. Mm-hmm. But I think I'm a hot shot now because I've been hanging out with Ali in the winter moments of what I'm studying all the stuff about contemporary art. And hey man, I had a beer with Rauschenberg. I mean with yeah with Rauschenberg. I mean how can you be that? Warhol took my photograph nine times. So, you know, <laughs> I'm in. Yeah. Okay. I get to the the Festival of Japan in 1993, I think it was. And the guy who arguably changed color photography. Oh, by the way, Ali sends me here, oh, yeah. where I live part of the year. Here's where I live part of the year. In uh, Positano. See. Lucky you. Right you must be. It's yeah, there. Ah, it's so beautiful. I don't know. It's. Um, I'm sad the way Italy has been affected recently, but Positano is not so affected, I think, no? No, 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 they only have two incidences and there was two ambulance drivers, but everybody's locked up inside. That's my terrace. Wow. That's my terrace right there. This is like heaven. It's like, you know, (laughs) it's paradise. Right there, right there. I'm going to bring my finger down. Uh Ah. Those islands right there. Oh. Those little bumps, uh-huh. those black bumps. That's the islands of the sirens. That's where Ulysses heard the song uh-huh. of the sirens of all beauty. But they're called the Serene or Godly, the dolls. Anyway, <coughs> Ali sends me to this place mm-hmm. where I, uh, I roamed around. My wife and I are married there with the Apollo's wedding, 586 people. My kid is the seed there, baptized there. We give money to the school, etc. That's like uh-huh. home away from home. But I, you know, she sent me right there. Mm-hmm. I did not want to go to Italy because my father and mother had been going to Italy and all I heard was like, you've got to go to Italy. So if I made some money, I wasn't going to go to Italy. I was going to go to Paris and London and Rome and Madrid and whatever. I mean, not Rome. And so Allie and I were watching a movie in 1981 called Darling with Julie Christie. And in the middle of it, she goes to the Amalfi Coast. I said, where's that? She said, that's Posacano. You have to go there. And she sent me there. I went right to Positano. I didn't go to Florence, but as a Roma, I went right to Positano. I stayed in the Sarah News, the owner of whom, Frank Sassali, became my child, our child's uh, godfather. And uh, they, that, that hotel was right below us. Mm-hmm. <coughs> I eventually bought a place there. So Ali sent me to Europe. Ali started me looking at art. But when you get to the Renaissance, I was in Japan, and the, my co-judge... I was with Jean Moreau, the great Jean Moreau. Oh, yes. 
Truffaut's yes. uh, Jules Le Gym. Mm-hmm. And uh, I was with Mike Metaboy, phenomenal producer, Orion, and produced Robocop. And I was with Vittorio Storaro. Vittorio Storaro started as a as precious big color cinematographer with guys like Dario Gento, later became Benelucci's guy, and then Warren Beatty's guy, and five Oscars later, you know, Apocalypse Now, et cetera. I'm with him, and he's got Versace. And uh, I asked him, who is his favorite painter? And he goes, favorite painter? He says, Peter, have you been to Padua to see Giotto in the Capella Scrovegni? And I go, Giotto again, man. No, I said, I never, I don't even know it. I don't even know what Giotto is. And he took his scarf, he threw it over his shoulder. A lot of my friends know this. And he said, okay, non posso volare insieme de belle arte. We can't talk about art. Yeah. And I said, I said to him, I said, say pretentioso, <laughs> pretentious. And Victoria said, no, don't say pretentioso, because you are like everyone who gets into contemporary art. You think you can talk about Roscoe or Rosenberg or Cy Twombly or whatever, but you have no context. Because if you have not seen Giotto, if you do not know who Giotto is, if you have not seen the first one by six five framing of space, time, dimension, color, everything in the Capella Scrovegni, if you not if you do not have a hinge from Giotto, all of your talk, I'm paraphrasing him, is just empty. It's just fraud. Because you have no context. And so I go, okay, enough of this. And I go to see Jolto with a very dear friend of mine, Brian Hamill, who is a world-renowned uh, still photographer for film. His brother is Pete Hamill, oh, and, yeah, right another, one, of the great, one of the great intellectuals in New York. Mm-hmm. And Dennis and John Hamill are great writers. But Brian is basically a thug and a, 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 an ex-Rolling Stone photographer. He photographed some of the great rock and rollers ever. And was Woody Allen and, special, and Barry Levinson and Martin Scorsese's poster photographer, De Niro and Raging Bull. And we go uh, to see Giotto in a day when you could sit in that chapel, which is no longer than, I don't know, 30 yards, and look at those frames of the story of Mary and the story of Jesus, and just look at the framing, the depth, the passion, the crying, the kiss at the bridge between Joachim and Anne, the, the tears of Mary. You know, this is a 1305, man. Mm. This is not like uh, William Wyler, you know, in the best years of our lives. Mm-hmm. This is like 1305. Mm-hmm. And we are dumbfounded. So where do you start with the Renaissance? Well, it's not like picking up a book on, I'm sorry. Uh, um, it, it, it's not like picking up, a, a, you, know, a, you know, a book on, uh, on Paul Clay. Mm-hmm. You, Renaissance is poetry. It's war. It's economics. It's it's uh, it's not just art, but it's mm-hmm. the patronage of art, it's the intellectual mm-hmm. history, it's Machiavelli, it's how the, everything affected the patronage. It's the first time people started keeping records of contracts and stuff. It's mm-hmm. immense. Yeah. Songs. You can't study that on your own. I mean, mm-hmm. you can, but you're never going to touch the surface. So I talked to Ali, and I, I got, by this time I got a couple of friends. Walter Lee, K. Bless his was the head of one of the gardens of European paintings at the Met. Um, so my dear friend, uh, Maria Canales is at the Volta Academy now. And mm-hmm. they said, you know, take a course at Syracuse, man. Syracuse has got this great summer program. 
it's 10 weeks. You go to Italy. And thank God I got Jerry Radke, who's become the head of the Department of Circuit. 10 weeks to Italy. Now, I'm going to Italy at the time. I live in Italy. But I don't know the Renaissance. <laughs> I speak Italian, etc. But I don't know the Renaissance. And Radke's class in 1998 was a game changer for me. And then by that, I got invited into this very elite group at Syracuse University in Florence to do the entire master's degree in Florence. And uh, I did that with uh, Rab Hatfield and Jonathan Nelson and Molly Bourne and and, and a great collection of, of, of art intellectuals and art historians, but art teachers who also knew about Suzanne and they knew, you know, about, uh, you know, uh, Picasso, and they knew about, you know, Brock and Green and all the people that took it in Jackson Pollock. Those people knew that stuff. And so I got thrown nose deep into the Renaissance and uh, then applied for a PhD to NYU and, and UCLA got accepted to both and came here to UCLA. Yeah. <clears throat> and now I'm a published artist story. And how did all this happen, man? Well, you got to do all of it. Man. You got to be an actor, director, jazz musician, raise an eight year old kid. Um, you know, find a Mark Rothko to own, and I guess, you know, I, I, I love it. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. like, I got to get up and do everything. There's not enough hours in the day for me to do everything. So, well, it's, it's a real, uh, like, a beautiful lust for life, and I think it's really important, yeah, because we just have this limited time, and there's so many. I think, I think your message is very important, and I think it's also important in this celebrity drenched world where you had all of that, and you said, no, you know what, there's, there's more beyond this, because now, you know, like, people, a lot of people just say, oh, I will just accept that. That's, that's a pinnacle in this today's society, right? Right? And you say, no, this is fascinating. You're taking breaks from that. You're uh, going into Renaissance, I believe, even uh, 15th century Venetian art history. Yeah. You know, you're going, you're saying, I, and I think it's just so important. It's really, because how do we learn for the future unless we really appreciate the past and the beauty of it? Well, uh, you know, and I, I got to tell you, Mia, I didn't do that for anything other than curiosity. And then when I found this thing, I go, you know, Leonardo, like Da Vinci, Leonardo said to Francois Prunier, I guess, it's maybe apocryphal, but maybe not. You know, qu'est-ce que le secret de ta vie? And Da Vinci responds, curiosita, curiosita. And I'm certainly no Da Vinci, man, and there's only one Da Vinci, he's a Martian. But that idea of being curious you know, my father was like, fascinated with history. My uncles and my, my cousins are all like brainiacs. And mm -hmm. my brother was a brainiac. And I, I wanted to play catch up ball, but thank God my father mm -hmm. infused me, both my mother and father infused me with a curiosity about what, how the world works mm -hmm. and travel. And there's yeah. nothing that delivers compassion for curiosity in your fellow man more than travel, you know? Mm -hmm. um, you could sit in Beverly Hills all your life and wait for the cows to come home, but you're not going to learn much. Yeah, I think it's, it's really true because there's there's so many different ways of looking at the world, you know, but if you don't go somewhere else, you're not going to... It's so humbling, I think, you know, because you become like it a is baby. It humbling, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it makes, makes you a baby again. Yeah. Yeah. 
and babies are great it's great because you discover everything all the time I think and we should say you know it's just now been 500 you mentioned Da Vinci so it's been 500 years since his passing yeah. and uh, yeah. we're still learning from him I was lucky to see before the Louvre closed the, the big exhibit they had I don't know if you've got a chance to see uh, Da Vinci bringing all these works together and it is humbling talk about humbling um, I know in terms of the Renaissance, you have written, actually I was just reading your essay on um, Antonella de Messina, Images of uh, Eke Homo, uh, and, and uh, um, I, so I know that you have, you write uh, uh, about Donatello, the uh, bronze, uh, his David, um, so I, I know Da Vinci isn't your particular focus, but um, we can't neglect him either. No, you can never neglect Da Vinci, because Da Vinci is like a... Uh, you know, uh, you know, guys in the movie business come up to me and friends and stuff where they go, you know, I'm reading this book on Da Vinci, I'm reading that thing on Da Vinci. They just said, Which, is he just, like, not from this earth? They go, listen, man, there's not a teacher from Rab Hadfield on, there's not a class I've ever sat in on Da Vinci that people are just inexplicable about Da Vinci, man. They yeah. just go, like, okay, how do you, they forget that they he invented the three-way crane, uh -huh. he contributed to water moving upwards, uh -huh. He applied as a gig as an engineer uh, uh, with the, uh, the sports family. He was not, uh, and yeah, he's a painter. He's the guy that goes like, I talk about this. Okay, the world becomes obsessed with Singapore perspective. I'm looking at this perfect photograph of Singapore perspective of the village where I live. It doesn't sound like. And Da Vinci's like the first guy to point out. He goes, you know, you could paint that all you want, mm -hmm. uh, you know, for 60 years of painting, but the eye does not see, will not see my face. <clears throat> will not see those villages, those village houses, those villages on the mountaintop and those islands in the same clarity, even though they're in perspective, as the eye will see my face. So mm -hmm. you're talking about, you know, soft focus, uh, sumato. I mean, mm -hmm. I, I, I don't know how he figured that out. Mm -hmm. How did he do that? I mean, you look at himself in a mirror and you go, okay, that stuff is in perspective, you draw the golden mean outside of itself with the orthogonals and hexagonals, right? Verticals. But how does he know that all of that is slowly going out of focus? Mm -hmm. Because I'm looking at it, and when I look at it, it's in focus. Yeah. I look at myself, I can't tell that it's going out of focus. It's in my group. I don't know. The guy's like a one-off. The guy's, yeah, you can't discard Da Vinci from anything in the West mm -hmm. or the East. No, he really. Yeah, but he really went out. He, uh, how did he do it? He took great pains. I mean, he wasn't satisfied just to learn anatomy. He's like digging up the bodies, and you know, let's find yeah. out what. <laughs> you know, <laughs> I'm just not, I yeah. wonder how is it made. You know, like that's. I know anatomy, but I have never <laughs> gone that far. Um, so yeah, I, I know. I mean, I mean, it's funny because Donatello is doing the. He's the first, really. If you want to, like an artist, yeah. where the Renaissance jumps off. Right? The cliche. Mm -hmm. It's really Donatello. I mean, Donatello is the guy that brings us the, the realism of a face. Yeah. And you know, and he moves from the richer gear. Mm -hmm. and that's, and by, the, by the way, Richie, if you watch this, Richie's a great friend, a long time friend. Uh -huh. But the perfection of that, what I call the Richard Gere hair, because Richard's so good looking. Yeah. Uh, from the international gothic of Gilbertini's finger, these poses. And Donatello took it in that, you know, that the statue of St. Mark is one of my favorites, where people just hated it until the people loved it. The people of Florence loved it. Yeah. Because he's squinting, he's slouched, his, his, the robe is all wrinkly. Uh -huh. It's not elegant. He's like, looks like he's about to walk off that 
the Clinton talk to you and uh, you know initially they hated it because where's the elegance was the heroism in it but then all of a sudden the people see it they go wow looks like my uncle looks like my dad looks like my brother and uh, maybe he's the first guy to bring that to us and I think he is and without Donatello uh, you don't have the figurative realism of the physique which he does by looking at, and we don't know, he could have been looking at sarcophagi or whatever, but he's the first guy to get it. But in spite of that, in spite of the naturalism, or I better, let me put it this way, the realism of Donatello's physiques, he still doesn't do anatomy. And it's mm-hmm. Leonardo that goes, wait a minute, I want to know how those bones are really connected. You know, I want to see the other jawbone is like, uh, and, and that's, sort of sacrilege you know to go do that you know Catholicism you don't mess with that body man. Um, you know nowadays we do it because of medical purposes and so forth but you know Leonardo can't get my I love to he was I love such a dinner with that guy Oh, yeah, I know. He has to be at that dinner table of the, the ultimate, uh, you know, artists, scientists, whatever. And so in, so it's, you know, segueing, you know, into the, the films and TV, you know, the acting, who for you, I mean, because you've worked with some great actors and directors, but, and then if you were speaking of a Da Vinci figure of someone with, you know, immense curiosity that you had a chance to, or just anyone that you just admired, just tell me about... Um, in the film world, in this 20th century moving pictures? Uh, well, there are um, a couple of three people. Mm-hmm. And funny enough, they all had a fascination with art. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and they were all talking about it. So, you know, the first one really, I mean, there's a great woman at American Academy of Dramatic Arts who passed away too young, named Joy Weiler, who really got oh. fascinated. But uh, is a great teacher, got me interested in looking, listening, listening to human beings. But the, my, 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 my craft really jumps off with the late and, the, and phenomenal actress and teacher, uh, Uta Hagen. Uh. And Uta Hagen had an HB studio and original, who's part of Junior World for the replacement with Kazan and Brando and, and, and national tour of Street Night and Desire and Country Wife and Country Girl, I'm sorry, Clement Odette, and a lot of other stuff. But, uh, her discipline and her exercises and her method of superimposing your life on someone else's, or if not, just making it up. The, the investigating yourself in connection to whatever it is you're saying and doing, and also her knowledge of literature and art and so forth was just phenomenal. And so she was a, you know, a, a massive mentor to me and um, as was um, Mike Nichols and Mike Nichols graduate Catch 22 but did, did a play called Streamers and um, put me into the lead of it about a month into the run and then became a friend and a mentor and a father figure and a, 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 one of the guys I could always go to that well if I didn't know that, and an art enthusiast and you, hey, he's the first guy to tell me to go look at Piero, uh, at Piero Della Francesca I'm like that <laughs> so now you gotta go to Arezzo and look at this legend of the true cross man see these frescoes and you can't believe it these like pale faces I thought what the hell is he talking about so you know there's another guy that I followed my career and then another guy these are all art guys by the way mm, um, 
talk of it was the guy that put me and Ali, Ali McGraw together in the film Sidney Lumet. Oh, and okay. another guy, these are all legends, man, mm-hmm. and I was fortunate to work with, with all of them. And another guy that inducted me into the actor's studio, brought me into the actor's studio, was uh, Elia Kazan. Oh. And despite, what, what, despite what the world may think of him for giving up five, eight names to uh, House of America's activities, he is a, a hero, a gift. Yeah. To American naturalism, and and and, and in the founder of the Actors Studio, uh, and a guy who could take a scene apart and nail the instinct and the event of drama in ten seconds. Wow. And I did a couple of improvs with him, and he was also, uh, like I say, instrumental. Him and a guy named John Sticks were instrumental in bringing me to the Actors Studio. And so those are powerhouses of people, man. Oh, you put those, I mean, Uta, Uta Hagen had a clash with Kazan about outside American activities, even uh, though she'd worked with him and adored him, and he adored her. And one of the great moments of my life was, I was Kazan was going to, before I became a member of the studio, was going to direct a Richard Burton in King Lear, and he wanted to see 10 actors to play Edgar. And I was one of them, and I was a happening New York actors so I rehearsed all night this scene they said he had to do an empty stage but he believed in physical life what is, what is the guy doing before the guy comes in with the, the door with the gun and I, I started Uda believe in that exercise after exercise what is your physical life in that space mm-hmm. we are not standing around in close ups we are mm-hmm. engaged ever notice how angry are the cliche when you're the angriest the how busy you get washing the dishes mm-hmm. how you know Fussing around the house when you're frustrated, you know that is the event of what are you doing in that room? That was Kazan. That was the group theater. That was Harold Clerman. That was Uta Hagen. That's the grounding. That's the seminal foundation of the method. And anyway, I'm gonna. I auditioned for Kazan. I've got. I brought. I threw in a box, a chair. I jump over the chair. I'm doing the Edgar speech, the bastard speech. He says, "Come here. I want to talk to you." And Uda was a member of the theater, and the, the House on American Activities did not touch the theater, but they ruined people in, in the movie business. Uh-huh. And uh, Kazan, uh, Uda had blown off Kazan. And I sit down, and I'm 27 years old, and Kazan says, Who do you study with? That was great. Who do you study with? Uh-huh. And I'm loath to mention Uda Hagen because I know she hates him loves him and then now hates him and I said Uta Hagen he said Uta Hagen I thought so Uta Hagen powerful powerful woman Mm. brilliant actress thank you Mm -hmm. and that's the last I saw of him until three years later when I became a member of the actor's studio cut to 15 20 years later Uta Hagen's at a dinner honoring her board of directors HB Theater celebs all over the United States Somebody brings up Kazan, she's sitting at the end of the table. She's pretending she's not hearing, and I interrupted. I just said, this is one of the great moments. Ever. I said, uh, Ms. Hagen, you know, I auditioned for Ilya Kazan. I became a member of the actor's studio under him three years after I worked with him. Yeah. She's like glowering at me. She says, I didn't know that. I said, yeah, and I have to tell you something else. Before I became a member of the actor's studio, I auditioned for him for King Lear, Richard Burton. It never happened because Burton got sick. 
And um, he, I did this whole, worked this all night on this thing, jumping over a box in a chair and sat me down. He said, who do you study with? And now anybody at this table is listening. And uh, she says, what did you say to him? And I, this is now in 1998. Mm-hmm. That happened in 1977, man. Mm-hmm. And she said, what did you say to him? And I said, I studied with Uta Hagen. And he said, this is Hagen. Uta Hagen, I thought so. Mm-hmm. Uta Hagen, powerful, powerful woman, brilliant actress. Mm-hmm. And she softened at the mm-hmm. age of 82. Yeah. And said, he said that? And I said, yes, man, he did. She said, thank you. Mm-hmm. And I think I took 40 years off her life. <laughs> and subsequently, uh, look, My best friend, Mia, is an antiquarian book dealer. Oh, yes? In L.A.? He's one of the... Yes, he's one of the top four in the world. Mm -hmm. Is it Maya or Mia? Mia. Mia. Okay, Mia. He sells to the Sorbonne, the Ah. British Museum. He sells the Gates. You understand? He had one of the five known actors' editions of 1595 of Hamlet, or 1585, right? With the notes of the photos. He had the last... Portfolio, yeah. I mean, last portfolio. So he found me this. He will not tell me where it's come from. It's provenance. This is an original. I'm going to take this down. Intact. Signed. It comes from one woman. Signed by Uta Hagen and Marlon Brando. Wow, that's a wonderful piece of history. Well, Brando stopped signing autographs. Yeah. Ah, that's that's a rare one, yeah. And there he is, and there's his autograph right there. So, uh, yeah, he got it from an estate mm-hmm. from a girl who got that sign on her 16th birthday. One owner only. He will not tell me how he got it, mm-hmm. but I think he got it from Sotheby's, and he gave it to me as a gift. So, what I'm giving you is a context here, like we're talking about art. Yeah, exactly. For theater and film. Uh, you know, I got a couple of chapters left. The great thing that I got to hold on to, I'm throwing out a lot of stuff in storage, is that I came up under the tutelage of giants of yeah. theater and film. Giants. Mm-hmm. And uh, <clears throat> I wouldn't say that I'm a giant of theater and film, mm-hmm. but I certainly would not be where I am had I not been so fortunate you have known everybody from Joy Wilder to Uta Hagen and Yili Kazan to uh, uh, the, the, the Mike Nichols and the Cindy Lamette and the Ali McGraws who yeah. threw me into art mm-hmm. and all of this is one thing called mm-hmm. I want to express myself you know mm-hmm. because I don't I don't think I got to as a kid probably <laughs> You also, yeah. you know, you said you got this travel, you were going around. I think that that's a great gift that you got. You know, super, so that you give you perhaps kindled something, you know. You can live, if you work hard, you can live one more, more than one life, right? Yes, and travel is the, is the I think the tra- travel is the, I don't know, Nathaniel Hawthorne traveled. I mean, he became an expatriate in Italy. I got to thank my mom and dad. You know, my dad was a... Uh, Army uh, jet helicopter pilot uh, in, in three wars, and then became a judge, and they traveled all the time. And my 
father and mother said, get in the car, we're going, get in the car, we're going, get in the car, we're going. And I didn't really want to travel. I didn't want to sit in the back of a car. I had no interest in traveling, but I'm so happy they made me travel. You know, we sow our kid into, uh, you know, L.A. people don't travel. They go to, they go to, they go to Mammoth, they go skiing, they go to Hawaii. That's about it. You know, I can't believe it when we had a kid, when Sherry and I had, we had, I have an eight-year-old. When Teddy was born, all these people said, oh, you're going to give up the house in Italy, right? I mean, you're not going to go to Italy anymore. And I go, why? Why am I not? Why am I not going to go to Paris and, and mm. France and Italy and, and London and Spain? Why? Why am I not going to do that? Because people in L.A. don't. Ah, it's they crazy. live in the sanctity, the sanctity of this weather and protection. It's, it's and, beautiful. And they, they don't get traveling. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, we, more and more people around the world are living these curated lives. And My name is Brett Young, an associative interviewer and podcast producer here with The Creative Process, as well as a recent graduate from Fordham University. There, I majored in communications and media studies. My education has mainly focused in the realm of cinema, television, and streaming content, forcing my attention toward more modern innovations in entertainment and art. In listening to Weller's admiration for the accomplishments of Renaissance artists, I see now how this era of innovation created an overall context to art, an infrastructure which we continue to build upon today. For him, context is everything. While cinema and television absorb most of my focus, it's impossible to deny that these modern visual art forms are only made possible by the overlooked achievements of the Renaissance. As Weller reminds us, framing, depth, realism, these are just a few of the things contemporary art takes for granted. It's hard to deny the importance of Weller's message. It's one which begs us to be curious and encourages us to ask questions. Myself, growing up with reporters as parents, I deeply relate with this message. Back in 2015, I produced a documentary covering my father's career with CBS News. In it, he explained that what he valued most about the job was that he got the ability to listen as well as the opportunity to ask questions. I see Weller's transformation from actor into art historian as granting him that same opportunity. His dedication to art and entertainment is palpable in his level of curiosity, his motivation to get to the root of the meeting. It's one thing to create a popular piece of art, though it's another to understand why it is so popular. Weller's journey into researching the Renaissance is one which highlights the passion and dedication it takes to fully comprehend the meaning and power behind a particular work of art. Even as Weller moves on to discuss jazz and his musical career, this sense of appreciation is ever-present, as he expresses his admiration for legends of the craft, such as the late Miles Davis, Sinatra, and Stravinsky. I agree with Weller that this curiosity is not fostered enough in modern education, leading many of us today to forget just how important eras like the Renaissance are in understanding modern art forms. In my opinion, it is clear that this appreciation for context is what has given Weller the courage to submerse himself in such a wide variety of art with intensity and devotion, something that too few of us find ourselves doing today. Your mother was also a jazz pianist too. So you, so you're yes, a trumpeter, 
and I want yeah. So I want to talk about. I, I don't want to. I don't want. I want to continue to talk about the acting. I want to like include this whole Renaissance uh, figure that you are. But I do want to talk a bit about the music. And you've also performed with some of your fellow actor musicians. I guess Jeff Goldblum. I don't know who you're. I don't know what the current configuration of the band is now or how you play now, but. Jeff Goldblum is one of the great human beings walking planet Earth. Let me just give you that right away. He's one of the one of the one of the kindest, most eccentric, informed, curious, delightful people that I've ever known. And his oldest roommate is another great guy, a legit hero in environmentalism, Ed Begley Jr., also oh, wow. a very famous comedian. So those two guys are like very tall, mm-hmm. very lean, in really good shape. They talk um, in, in a very unique way. Mm-hmm. They're both eccentric and hysterical. Mm-hmm. And I only wish I'd have known them when they were roommates. Mm-hmm. When they first, first came to LA and they were roommates. Because I, I went over to their apartment once, but I, I didn't know them well. But Jeff I met in his first job, the two gentlemen of Verona, it was my first job, Six and Bones, both in Japan. Um, I met him, I, don't, I hope I'm not blowing his cover, but um, I met him on the, I didn't know this, I, mm-hmm. I met him on the night, the opening night of Two Gentlemen of Verona in 1973, mm-hmm. uh, the night he lost his virginity. Oh. <laughs> right? And now that you could have that, by the way. Now, <laughs> just, just to catch up to that, I was at this big Orlando Comic Con, oh. huge. Yeah, and uh, with another dear friend of mine, a gifted human being, mm-hmm. and born on the same day as Jeff, but ten years mm-hmm. apart, um, tw- eleven years apart, mm-hmm. Christopher Lloyd. The oh, yes. Kid. I did Buckaroo Banzai with both those guys. Christopher Lloyd is uh, like Jeff, a, a hysterically funny and a savant, uh-huh. and eccentric, uh-huh. and maybe the smartest guy, really the smartest guy ever. And he could sit for 45 minutes and not say a word, or he could become Back to the Future. It, uh, it's, you never know what's coming out of Christopher Lloyd. And Christopher Lloyd and I were sitting, thinking about old times, and Jimmy Tolkien, James Tolkien, who plays the principal in Back to the Future, and the cigar-smoking commandant in Top Gun, and a great actor I did four plays with. And we're all sitting around remembering the theater days, and up comes Sean Astin, and Corey Feldman, and some other people. And I think it was Sean who said, man, you guys have known each other a long time. And then somebody said, yeah, but Peter, you've known actually Jeff Goldblum longer. And I said, yes, I met Jeff the night he lost his virginity. And without a pause, without a nanopeat, Christopher Lloyd said, what were you doing there? <laughs> That without a pop. <laughs> that is how fast Christopher Lloyd is, man. And so Jeff Goldblum and I played. We played in Buckaroo Banzai. We got a band together thanks to a guitar player who won two Grammys at Peter Harris. Wow. We played for a long time, and then Jeff went to New York to do a uh-huh. TV series. And I basically we share the same saxophone player. Once in a while, we'll play together. Uh, the great James King. I played a sextet with Ryan Cross and. Um, and Rick DePure, all professional guys. Mm-hmm. Jeff plays in his sex set, and but we love each other, and mm-hmm. he's the best, man. Mm-hmm. So we, I still play jazz. I, I'd rather talk about music here than anything. Oh. Here, look, I got, I got Miles, Miles. self-portrait. Yeah. Miles, Miles. It's Miles is a hero. Look, mm-hmm. I not only am Miles Davis a self-portrait, but 
I got the only one of two photographs of that self-portrait with Miles in it, like there. Oh, wow. And then I got the album cover with that self-portrait on it. And next to it is the uh, silk screen, one of the original three silk screens of Frank Sinatra's nineteen-year-old um, um, arrest, yeah. given to me by given to me by uh, Tina Sinatra, his mm -hmm. youngest daughter, and who's just a gem and a friend of mine for thirty years. Mm -hmm. She gave it to me and Sherry on her for a wedding gift. Mm -hmm. But that, you know, so Miles, I would rather talk about Miles and Coltrane, Sinatra, Duke Ellington. Stravinsky, uh, you know, I mean, those are heroes. Those are, those are real. I don't know who was it. Was it Pascal? Who was it said that all art forms can only aspire to music? I think yeah. I think and I think it's true. I mean, when you're pl when you're performing as um, as an actor, is music a way in for you? You talk about improvisation. Yeah. 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 Music is music is music is my way into everything. To directing to everything. Mm -hmm. I'm always listening to something, and uh, I don't know. You know, music is so personal. I mean, mm -hmm. that's the that's the one thing about it. Uh, musical is music is so personal. It's so it's so personal. It's not like what Tom Wolfe said in that gifted thing, the painted word. You ever read Tom Wolfe's the painted yeah. word? His goof on art. Oh yeah. It's like yeah. put down of art criticism. Mm -hmm. He put down everybody: Sidney Friedberg, Clement Greenberg, Harold Rosenberg, Leo Steinberg, all of them. Neil Steinberg was a was a mentor oh, But he basically says, you know, that art is art is the one painting is the one art form to which the public is not invited. Uh -huh. Because people will go see cats even though it was been canned. People will go see Doctor Chicago even though it's been canned. People will go see Mahler's ninth even though that was you know, nobody understood it. Uh, you know, people will go to anything, but they will not go by a Mia painting. Uh -huh unless somebody tells them because they have no no courage with us yeah. no courage with painting that's Tom Wolf's point look man I wouldn't buy a Rothko until uh -huh. I read about Rothko until somebody told me what the genius of Rothko is uh -huh. you know, I mean I've rarely ever bought a painting that I just thought hey I like that painting uh -huh. Yeah. I think yeah. I think that no. I think that the it's the money issue, right? Like if it wasn't like so, <laughs> you didn't want to mortgage your house to buy it. Like you can understand, but I think that artists, like people who are making art, have that appreciation. I mean, not that they have okay, but, uh, the money no, to buy no, it. But let me give right. But let me give you a point, a case in point. Okay, this Roscoe over here, which I will guarantee you is real and worth about I don't know four or five million. Wow. I, I got for a song. Mm -hmm. Why? Because even though it's provenance, <coughs> from 1954, <clears throat> mm -hmm. the last COA, mm -hmm. the, the Certificate of Authenticity, right? yeah. when it was appraised 20 years ago, the guy must have been drunk uh -huh. because when he appraised it, buying the buyer from the original family, right? He's got the, you know, COA's got the formalism mm -hmm. at the top. You know, it's got Peter Weller, off, you know, writer, uh, mm -hmm. Peter Weller, painter, mm -hmm. you know, oil oil on canvas, dimensions, uh, and the, where it was bought, right? Mm -hmm. That's the formalism, what we call in Renaissance the formalism. You know, the artist, the medium, the date, the, the dimensions, and the, and the provenance, right? Mm -hmm. And it says oil on canvas. But then the, 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 the 
the appraiser in the in the uh, in the assessment, mm-hmm. the paragraph of the assessment, this Mark Rothko, he calls it a gouache on paper. Ah. So it bumps against his formalist description with the with the photograph. Mm-hmm. But then in the appraisal, he calls it a gouache on paper. So mm-hmm. he was drunk. I don't know, or or doing too much work, or he was looking at, you know, the Franz Klein rather than the Rothko. But he's, he's got it as a oil on canvas, blah, 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 blah. And so nobody wants to get near it. Right. Nobody wanted to get near it. And it was in the big estate sale. This guy bought it. Mm-hmm. So they go, no, no, that, that COA is screwed. You're never mm-hmm. going to get... So I said, I put in a, a low man's bid on it. Mm-hmm. I didn't care about the appraisal. Yeah, it's you know, what it I is. I know it's a rock, though. Yeah. yeah. Well, I think that that's um, part of it is that because because it's such um, a luxury object, you know, and so much money has gone into it, yeah. it, it stops people from seeing. So you no longer see like a painting for what it is or a sculpture or whatever. You see, oh, this is what it sold for over a hundred million. This is the most expensive painting ever or whatever. And then it becomes, they just don't see. It's like they go blind. I've gone through, uh, um, you know, museum exhibits with an art critic telling me, oh, I saw that before, whatever. And they're not seeing what is there now. They're just ticking it off, you know? <laughs> and that's a... Yes, but, yeah. but, isn't that the, but Mia, isn't that the curated life once again? Yeah. It's, it's the curated life. I feel I feel like people who are make the makers themselves like the same thing where you can you know listen to a piece of music because you make music, um, you um, you you act and direct and you have a close personal experience of it so you're not seeing it like oh and I was in this mega you know blockbuster film where you're not just seeing the the price tag on it you know what goes behind it. And I think that, so the more we can involve, and I hope if we can, uh, our little project can be part of this, the more we can involve the average person, artists and just people interested in creativity in that process, then you'll have the real respect and the real love that it comes to a kind of pure appreciation, right? Yes, I hope. I hope so, but, um, mm-hmm. but pure appreciation is that, I don't know if it's Rembrandt or somebody said walk into a room, a museum, um, find the painting that appeals to you most and look at it for five minutes. It's very hard to look at any painting for five minutes mm-hmm. without talking. But otherwise, don't try to see every painting in the room because you'll go like brain dead. Mm-hmm. Your, your, your brain can't take it in. Yeah. And so... Real appreciation started for me when I started to do that, because mm-hmm. otherwise I was skimming a whole lot of stuff. Mm-hmm. Walk into the Louvre, walk into the I don't know that Caravaggio hallway before the Mona Lisa. Mm-hmm. You know, scan some of those like late Baroque guys, and and then move on. But rather than just go, oh, let me look at this painting now. Mm-hmm. You know, let me look at this Gentileschi uh, and blow off all the rest of this. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, that's my systemic mm-hmm. for art appreciation now. 
No, I think so, because if you look at it, and I think that that's the way an artist looks, or that must be the way an actor appreciates a performance. Like if you, you know, rewatch something or you're immersing yourself in the role, it's like a process almost of not just by rote memorization, but you're like, you love this so much. You wonder, like, how did he or she do that, you know? And you're looking at each line or you're it becomes part of you like you're letting it and I think that's what you so true what you said about music and why it's for everyone because it's not something that exists as an object outside of you really it enters into you you know and even after yeah. it's turned off you can be still hearing those melodies right um, yeah uh, it's like a ghost yeah. on your senses right yes uh, I would like to think so anyway yeah mm -hmm. yeah I like to think I can turn it off so I can still feel it, yes. Yeah. It's a ghost on your senses. That's, you're kind of a poet. Yeah, right? I, I have to admit, my first love is I love writing. That's really like like what I do. And then I paint because, like, whatever, one informs the other. Uh, um, yeah, yeah. I love, you know, we haven't even spoken about some of the huge, and I'm keeping you a bit, but that's okay. <laughs> no, go ahead. Go ahead. We haven't right. spoken about some of the, um, I mean, you've had so, like, I think about iconic roles, the Robocop, or your um, television work now. Um, you mentioned Naked Lunch. I mean, these are some of the people who couldn't see your stage performances, because I couldn't see you know, your stage performances in New yeah. York. Um, but, like, would you like to speak about some of those roles and how you unlocked those characters or how you, you know, found yourself in them? Well, I mean, uh, I'd rather not talk about Robocop. Everybody knows what the rules Okay, well, okay, we can skip that, that one. Was like, that was like, you know, we, Tony and me, the great guy at Juilliard, and I had designed one thing. Uh-huh. And then uh, the gifted, uh, gifted designer of the Robocop suit, Rob Boutin, and uh, Paul Verhoeven and me and everything. So we had to make the suit work, and uh, Moni helped with that. We changed the whole character according to Robertson's gorgeous design to an, an, an animal, a giant, mm -hmm. loosely based on Nikolai Cherkasov. So Nikolai Cherkasov and Ivan the Terrible and Robertson and Moni all developed that character, mm -hmm. and with Verhoeven as much as I had anything to do with it. But say, uh, Naked Lunch, yeah, I mean, I can't remember. I was going through a real travesty of a busted relationship and uh, a naked lunch. I I I'd written a letter to David Cronenberg, almost begging him to be a naked lunch because it was a bible to me. It was a, one of the books that one of the books of uh, even though it was written by Burroughs' generation, it came out in my generation. Yeah, and uh, it's the sixties really. I mean, he wrote it. This is notes from up to nineteen fifty nine, but it's published. United States in the 60s and becomes a Bible of um, a Gulliver's Travels of of uh, Rebellion in the 60s. Uh, and now Time Life considers it one of the most influential books of the, of the century. I agree, so I would agree. Mm -hmm. So that was that and uh, my ex access to that descent was essentially very easy. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, Burroughs was always around to talk to. I don't know, man. You know, the accessing roles to me is, um, you know, if I was doing the interview of the film when I was doing it, I could tell you more. But right now, the discussion of how I access the role 
just happened to not only can I barely remember how I did it, I can remember the, the, the general circumstances of what were presented to me, like Robocop with the movement and the suit and those four gifted people and making lunch with Burroughs and my obsession with the book and Cronenberg's gift. Um, I'm trying to think of something else. Um, there's a wonderful small film with the Sundance that called Shadow Hours based on Goethe's spouse oh. that I did with um, Balthazar Getty and some other people about the, you know, the, dis the, the distinction between Dr. Faustus mm -hmm. and Marlowe were like literally yells above or the Satan comes to claim you mm -hmm. as opposed to Goethe which is like which that movie is really, I love doing it because it's truly about the devil isn't here mm -hmm. to get you. Mm -hmm. The devil is here to rub your nose in your bullshit mm -hmm. so you can wake up. Yeah. And if you don't pay attention, uh, you'll go down a rabbit hole. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? I see. And that's a, like the devil is your friend, mm. you know, in a way. You, you, you follow me? I do, and I think the, the devil can be a metaphor for your own inner demons, or, I mean... Well, that's what it is. You're yeah. De you, you, the devil is the metaphor for your bad behavior, man. Yeah. And if you're going to do that, and I, I loved it. I love doing that movie because I love what it's about. I love to look at what the devil is. And I play the devil. I play this guy who thinks Balthazar Getty is like thinking he can like relapse into this and play with this. And I shove his nose in it and he comes out a survivor. And then I laugh my way out of his life and go into another life. And that, <coughs> based upon uh, this Goethe idea, you know, that the devil's there to, the devil's there to just, uh, pardon the expression, fuck with you until you get it right and if you don't you die I have to say, in terms of roles, because you do have this great—I mean, you access—you can access humor. That's great too. But you can access sinister, and if you say characters who are there to fuck with you. You're good at accessing that <laughs> in the different roles. I'm yeah. sorry. I mean, but it's a skill. <laughs> I, I, yeah, you know, I—I just—I play this recurring guy on a on a TV show that's total uh, pulp, but mm -hmm. fun and informative. Mm -hmm. Called MacGyver. It's the reboot oh, of MacGyver. Yeah. So I play, and I also direct myself once in a while. I just direct. Mm -hmm. The last thing I did, I directed myself. Uh, uh, this guy called Elliot Mason, ex FBI agent, who initially wanted to get, get he's a super MacGyver, like a Moriarty mm -hmm. for MacGyver. And he wanted to get even with MacGyver because MacGyver's dad sacrificed uh, my, my character's son in a mission and so forth. And, and so then what happens is my ambivalence, I sort of become this quasi, this indefinable mm -hmm. uh, good guy. Mm -hmm. And uh, in the last couple of episodes, I actually help uh, MacGyver. I'm, I'm, I'm helpful, but still demonstrably, mm -hmm. uh, tenaciously mean. Yeah. And, I, I, and, you know, it's fun. I mean, like somebody says, well, what, you know, how does that compare to Naked Lunch or Robocop? Well, you can't compare the two, but the funny thing is, is that 
playing a guy, and it's great. The guy, the guy who rebooted it, Peter Lenkoff, overseas, a great friend, oversees the, the writing of my character. It's just as fascinating to play an arc of a guy like Stan Liddy mm-hmm. on, on Dexter. On Dexter, mm-hmm. right? A cocaine cowboy going south. Mm-hmm. And people come up to you and go, like, how about this morality going on? People go, yo, you're really bad, Dexter. I say, I'm sorry. Dexter cuts up people under a plastic sheet <laughs> and you're calling Stan Liddy bad guy? You know, the, the, how they, the goof that they've played on the audience. And then my intellectual advisor at UCLA, Peter Stacey, a genius from Cambridge, a, a, a jackboot, mm-hmm. leather boy, earring, mm-hmm. cigarette-smoking, punker, gifted dude, wanted to come to the set. Mm-hmm. He's my advisor, my intellectual advisor. He said, you want to come to the set of Dexter? He goes, yeah. Because, and he gets on the set and he's talking to uh, Michael and, uh, you know, and the, the cast, he says, the reason why the Brits love Dexter is because it's America. Mm-hmm. It's because it's America, because America is founded in blood. Mm-hmm. And it's righteous ideas. You got to take the morality out of Dexter. If you're height, you got a regular huckleberry thin dude with a mm-hmm. blonde-haired wife behind a white picket fence house being Mr. Donut Boy mm-hmm. at the same time imposing his judgment mm-hmm. right, wrong, no indifferent on whatever he deems immoral. Mm-hmm. And that is America. And that's America's blood ethic. Mm-hmm. And when Pete Stacey was like sounding off about that, we were all like going, my God, I think that's true. So playing that art in Dexter, or playing Christopher Anderson in 24, mm-hmm. where you've got this morality problem, is just as much fun as playing Elliot Mason in MacGyver. Mm-hmm. It's just as much fun. People say, well, don't you miss it? Listen, man, I've been offered like the role in a fat flick. The role is nothing. I'm mm-hmm. no interested in that. I just offered another one. Mm-hmm. I'm not interested in giving my time or space to something that doesn't interest me. Yeah. I don't care what the movie is. So, and those roles are fascinating. And mm-hmm. I do them again in a second. I play mm-hmm. Elliot Mason or Christopher Henderson or, or Stan Liddy in a second, man. What a ball I had, mm-hmm. you know, doing all of that. Because the, 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 the morality in all three of those people is shady. Mm-hmm. And that's what I love most. It's when the audience can't go, good guy, bad guy. Look. Uh, Alexander Marcus working with J.J. Abrams in mm-hmm. Star Trek in the Darkness one of the great times I ever had the guy's right don't, don't talk to Khan Khan's the bad guy and they talk to him so what do I gotta do I gotta take out the whole starship sorry but you guys messed up so the, the, the moral ambiguity of those characters are fun and moral ambiguity is um is something that I really love. And you know what? The best movie about moral ambiguity is RoboCop. Uh. Because RoboCop is only pointed out to me by third world interviews by people from the Congo and people from, uh. from Thailand, from Asia, and so forth, saying, do you understand that that idea of, in the name of progress, identity theft, uh. there's a moral ambiguity in RoboCop. There's a moral ambiguity when you go to Detroit and they say, we like the image of RoboCop without the helmet, but as a robot with a, with a gun in his hand, it's intimidating. Uh, it's a racial intimidation. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, 
you got to you know you got to take social history in stride here, man. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's loaded, and that was before drones or anything like that. You know, the, that's right. Um, yeah, that's I mean right. that's early '80s, right? The first one. Yeah. Um, yeah. No, it's interesting the how these icons uh, hold up, and they're like I don't know, like a Greek myth or anything that you could. It, it has its um, through line back to history or back to to other stories. Yeah, I like Greek myths. It's myth. It is uh -huh. myth. It is myth. You know, uh, Joseph Campbell said, "When your life uh, intersects with myth, it's not a coincidence. Those myths are not there. It's like a wowie pieces of fiction. Those myths are there as part of oral tradition to give you a signpost to the morality and the ethics of your life." Mm -hmm. Those myths are there for a reason. You know, I live and look at the I look at the island of Ulysses. Mm -hmm. Ulysses wanted to hear the song. Man. He wanted to hear the song of all infinity, of all beauty. He wanted people go mad to jump off the boat. They look for the sirens. They drown. Mm -hmm. You get the the metaphor there. You can't find infinity. You can't find all of anything. Mm -hmm. uh, you're lured to it. You're lured to perfection, but you're not going to find it. It's only progress, not perfection. And you will drown trying mm -hmm. to be perfect. And so those. Those coincidences, those myths, those signposts. Uh, I hope I can see them now because I'm locked in with my wife and kid. And once in a while, I go out for a walk. I go out for a cigar. But I tell you this: there's more interesting, weird stuff mm -hmm. about morality and ethics coming up in me mm -hmm. being alone yes. than ever came up in me before. Right after I leave you, I got to go meditate for 25 minutes. Yeah. I got to do that, man. Otherwise, I'll be jumping off the walls. Uh, because I live in a world of distraction. You do me. Uh -huh. I want to be in Paris, man. I want to be, I want to go eat uh, Les Jubilés and look at the Place Trocadero. Uh -huh. I don't want to sit in this apartment any longer and hear my kids' homework. I want to, <laughs> like, you know, I want to walk down the Boulevard Saint-Germain like everybody else. I want to, you know, I want to go to the Brasserie Lips, uh -huh. man, and, jeez, uh, I want to do my go and have the great, like, Jacqueline Bissett and I always had this great Argument about this: Does Angelina have better hot chocolate chocolate show than uh, than the Dumago? I think the Dumago has got better chocolate. So I, I I want to be where you are right now. I don't want to be here. Yeah, well, but, we're in lock know? we're in lockdown too. Well, I have to say here here because it's all about life, and it's all about ambiguities, and it's all about knowing that we don't know and like still <laughs> finding our are way. You, are you, are, wait a minute. Are you in lockdown in Paris? Yeah, lo lockdown. Everything's lockdown. We've been locked down around the same time, a little bit before the Los Angeles. But can you take a walk? I can take a walk, but it's really like you have to have a paper, or like a li you know, license <laughs> renewed every day to right. to do that. Yeah. Right, like Italy. Like Italy, yeah. you have to have the card. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. So, you know, uh, I, I, I just want to, if we're going to end this, yeah. Jean Paul, you know, Jean Paul Sartre. Jean Paul mm -hmm. Sartre, you know. Walked around with uh, so in Paris, and, yeah. uh, but you know, I just read. I, I was talking to my intellectual advisor, and guy Pete Stacey yeah. about you know hell is other people, right? And maybe the converse to that is true right now. Like like heaven would be other people, you know? Yeah. Like, like heaven would be the facility to socialize. Uh -huh. uh, but I was just rereading No Exit and Sarge's apology, uh, or. Is addendum to no exit, mm -hmm. which is which is exactly what we're doing. Mm -hmm. When he wrote, he wrote this thing. You can you can Google it. Mm -hmm. He said, you know, people have misunderstood this line. Hell is other people. It doesn't mean that hell is having to interact with other people. Yeah, actually, that's heaven. Mm -hmm. 
what hell does other people need, that those three people are trapped in purgatory. Mm. Almost like we are now, if I may say that, right? Yeah. The hell is other people statement really has more to pertain to where we are now with the lockdown. Mm. Because what he meant by it, if I may be so bold as interpret Sartre, is that the three people locked in this purgatory have only the two other people's reflection of themselves mm -hmm. to bounce their own experience of themselves. Like if you and I are in a room, mm -hmm. after a month, my Peter Weller experience would only be the me bounce. Mm -hmm. You understand? Yes. I do understand. And that's what he meant by hell is other people, because it means the containment of people Right. Eventually, you're only going to you contain with somebody. You're only going to experience yourself with them, yeah. off of them. Yeah, it's like a horrible um, uh, limited mirror, you know. Yes, it's a limited mirror. That's what he meant by hell is other people. He didn't mean the world is is hell. Uh. The world is great. Hell yeah. is being trapped with somebody who's only a limited mirror. Exactly right. Yeah, and he was one who liked variety, and you can tell because he liked to have many yeah. partners and everything, and so he needed to be reflected of, of other many people's consciousness. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I don't, I don't want to, I don't want to be in this no exit loop forever. <laughs> but um, I don't either. <laughs> but we are. It's. I think it's like a good ending note. Um, we are learning about ourselves. I mean, I think those who have made this voyage to the interior a few times now like are comfortable with it right and yeah, um we don't want to stay there forever but we're used to going up you know going down into the well and coming back up um so i just think that's a, a good point because i want to ask you now just like lastly because it's an educational initiative and i we talk about the future and you know um and that's a really good point about the importance of the art it helps us escape the hell you know it helps us broaden our consciousness um right. so, but so so peter well as you think about the future you know arts education we've been talking about some of this you know technology environment you know this world that we're leaving the next generation what are some things that you'd like to focus on that we could how could we change some of those systems you know to improve them including arts and in including um Well, the only thing I go back to is um, uh, uh, the most important thing is to, is the raising of kids and allowing kids their own expression. I grew up in the Prussian method of bell ringing, and you got to go do this, you got to behave, and you got to whatever, man. Mm -hmm. And I realized that my eight-year-old has more ideas and information and so forth on his own than I could ever really teach him. Yeah. And like Saul Bellow, the great Saul Bellow said, the great Saul Bellow, who is, I was fortunate enough to be a pen pal with a couple of times, said, you know, that which is important is never really taught, mm -hmm. but only revealed. Mm -hmm. And... Um, I think as we go to a new thing, uh, the, the leniency, yes, discipline is needed, but the leniency with, the, with, with children expressing themselves, children being able to express themselves, children having outlets for the arts, and not necessarily very deep into 
everything that a parent thinks is important. I think that's maybe the most important thing. You know, my mother, she said I played music. I didn't want to play music. There were times I wanted to quit. She says, okay, you're not going to quit music. And my father kind of threw me into sports, and I'm glad he did, because he said, I want you to learn how to share and how to lose and how to whatever. Mm. Uh, but then after that, they didn't insist they did anything, except that my mother would not let me out of music. She said, no, you ain't giving that up. You're not quitting music. You can quit anything you want, but you're not quitting music. So where do you draw the line, you know? I'm glad that she didn't. I mean, I, I would have quit. I would have quit longer. No, I did quit a couple times. But my kid plays piano. He's good at it. He's right there. <laughs> Can you say hello? <laughs> I mean, here he is. He says, hi, say hi to this Mia. Hello. You are a pianist? There. Yeah, he is. It's Teddy, the pianist, artist, writer. Yeah, Teddy. And, uh, yeah. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay, give me a kiss. So anyway, yeah, letting my kids say that, right? Like if yeah. I did that to my, if I did that to my dad, my dad would have said, "Shut down and shut up." <laughs> but um, uh, it's a, it's the space to give kids. I you know we got to find it every generation. Yeah, yeah, because they can teach us so much. We can we can t tell them what we know, but they can take it further. They have to take it further, right? They have to take it further. If you want to read a brilliant book, which uh -huh. I'm rereading, which is terrifying. Uh -huh. I read it 20, 20, I read it 20, 30 years ago. Uh -huh. Drama of the Gifted Child by oh. Alice Miller. Oh, Drama right. of the Gifted Child. A Freudian, Jungian, heavy-duty psychoanalyst realized that the baby boomer generation were a bunch of psychological chameleons because they were essentially avoiding um, uh, the emotional havoc at home, which is All a right. post-war havoc. And subsequently became emotional liar. Oh. And she realized that a generation of, my, my generation was essentially mm. not given space to express. So we, we, we like, you find expressive people mm. in my generation, sure, because we're blown out of paper bag. Mm -hmm. We don't have the freedom to express, we didn't have it. So the freedom to express is something you gotta give a kid. I would say that's the secret mm -hmm. to life. Well, I think that's a beautiful secret, and you definitely have a large dose of the secret. And um, I want to, to thank you, um, Peter Reller, for your lifetime commitment to arts, um, the variety, strangeness, pain, pathos, and complexity of your characters. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. My pleasure, Mia. Listen, when I come, je vive à Paris, this interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Associate interviewer and producer on this podcast was Brett Young. Digital media coordinator is Yu Young Lee. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anandolis and performed by the Athenian Trio.